Let's pray together. Triune God, we worship and we adore you today. We thank you for the way you've been speaking to our hearts already. We thank you for your presence here with us. I pray now as we look at your word that you would continue to speak to us, continue to heal us, continue to make us more like you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so it's the last week of Habakkuk for those who've been here. Last week I'm going to be up for a while, so I'm excited and glad to be here. I'm feeling a little bit sad that I'm not going to be up. I'm starting to get into the rhythm and really enjoying that. Um, But I'm also excited because we have a youth retreat next weekend, so I won't have to put into a sermon. I'll be able to use that time to get ready for the youth retreat. Um, So today we're going to start with a video, one that we we watched before. We watched one of the Bible Project videos. This one is on Habakkuk, so you can see where we've gone and where we're coming to today. So enjoy the video, and I'll be back in a minute. The book of the prophet Habakkuk. He lived during the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, and it was a time of injustice and idolatry. He saw the rising threat of Babylon on the horizon, and that was not good news for anybody. But unlike the other prophets, Habakkuk does not accuse Israel. He doesn't even speak on God's behalf to the people. Rather, all of his words are addressed personally to God. And the book tells about Habakkuk's personal struggle, his journey of trying to believe that God is good when there is so much evil and tragedy in the world. And so Habakkuk's words are actually poems of lament, and they're very similar to the laments that you find in the book of Psalms. The poet lodges a complaint and then draws God's attention to suffering or injustice in the world, demanding that God do something. And knowing about this lament form, it's actually the key to understanding the design and message of this short book. Chapters 1 and 2 are framed as a back-and-forth argument between Habakkuk and God. And the prophet lodges two complaints to which God offers two responses. His first complaint is that life in Israel has become horrible. The Torah is neglected, resulting in violence and injustice, and it's all being tolerated by Israel's corrupt leaders. And Habakkuk, he's crying out, asking God to do something, but nothing seems to change. But then all of a sudden, God responds. He says that he's very aware of the corruption of his own people, Israel, and that he's summoning the armies of Babylon to bring down his justice on Israel. And very similar to the message of Micah or Isaiah, God says he will use this terrifying empire to devour Israel because of their injustice and evil. But Habakkuk has a problem with this answer, and so he offers his second complaint. He says Babylon is even worse than Israel. They're more corrupt. They're more violent. They've deified their own military power. They treat humans like animals, gathering them up like fish in a net, he says. They devour nations and people groups in order to build their own empire. And so Habakkuk says, how can you, a holy, good God, use such corrupt nations as your instruments in history? He demands an explanation. In fact, he depicts himself as a watchman on the city walls waiting for God's response, which eventually comes. God tells Habakkuk to get out some tablets and chisel and write down what he sees and hears. It's a vision about an appointed time in the future that even though it may seem slow in coming, it will eventually come. In fact, God says that the righteous person will live by their faith in this hope and vision. 
So what is this divine promise that Habakkuk is supposed to write down? It's that God will bring Babylon down. God says that the violence and oppression of the nations creates this never-ending cycle of revenge and that God will use this cycle to bring about the rise and fall of nations. And the fact that God might for a time use a corrupt nation like Babylon does not mean that he endorses everything that they do. He holds all nations accountable to his justice. And so Babylon will fall along with any other nation that acts like them. God's promise is then elaborated by a series of five woes that describe the kinds of oppression and injustice that's perpetrated by nations like Babylon. The first two target unjust economic practices, like how wealthy people will charge ridiculous interest just to keep poor people in debt, and so they build their wealth through crooked means. The third woe is a critique of slave labor, treating humans like animals and threatening them with violence if they don't produce. The fourth woe targets the abuse of alcohol by irresponsible leaders. While people are suffering under their bad leadership, they're partying and wasting their money on sex and booze. And the last woe exposes the idolatry, the engine that drives such nations. They have made money and power and national security into their gods, offering these allegiance at all costs. And so people become slaves to their own national empire. Now the practices described here aren't unique to Babylon, but that's part of the point. Given the human condition, most nations eventually become Babylon. And so this is how God's answer to Habakkuk in this book becomes God's answer to all later generations, to anyone who lives in a world ruled by other Babylons. But it leaves the question hanging. Is God going to let this cycle, the rise and fall of Babylon-like empires go on forever? And that question is what chapter 3 is about. We're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, and it begins by Habakkuk pleading with God to act now in the present like he has in the past in bringing down corrupt nations. And what follows is a very ancient poem. It first describes a powerful, terrifying appearance of God. It's very similar to the opening poems of Micah and Nahum and similar to the appearance of God at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus. There's cloud and fire and earthquake. When the creator shows up to confront human evil, everybody will be paying attention. Habakkuk then goes on to describe this future defeat of evil as a future exodus. So just like God came as a warrior and he split the sea in his battle against Pharaoh, Habakkuk says that God will once more bring his judgment down on the head of the evil house. So Pharaoh, like Babylon, has become here an archetype of violent human nations. But at the same time, we're told that when God confronts evil, he will save his people and his anointed one. It's a reference to the king from the line of David. And so in this poem, the Exodus story of the past has become an image of the future Exodus God will perform. He will once again defeat evil and bring down the pharaohs and the Babylons of this world. He'll bring justice to all people and rescue the oppressed and the innocent. And it's this hope that enables Habakkuk to conclude the book with hopeful praise. Even if the world's falling apart with food shortage or drought or war or whatever, he will choose trust and joy in the covenant promises of God. And so Habakkuk, by the end of this book, becomes a shining example of how the righteous live by faith. Habakkuk recognizes just how dark and chaotic the world and our lives can become, and he invites us into a journey of faith, of trusting that God loves this world more than we do, and that he will one day deal with its evil. 
And that's what the book of Habakkuk is all about. So much good stuff. I really love how the Bible Project puts a chapter together and just makes it so succinct for us. Um, We're going to start with chapter 3, and it begins like this. This prayer was sung by the prophet Habakkuk. I have heard all about you, Lord. I am filled with awe by your amazing works. In this time of our deep need, help us again as you did in years gone by. And in your anger, remember your mercy. In the midst of prayers gone wrong, Babylonian threats, a long list of woes, Habakkuk found hope in remembering. Remembering stories he had heard about God's power, faithfulness, and mercy. All throughout the Bible we're reminded of God's story and ours. In Deuteronomy, we see a message of remembrance to a new generation who weren't there to see the early miracles of the Exodus. Moses wrote to them of who they were, whose they were, where they were going, why they were going there, and how they were going to live once they arrived. He told them to remember the commands of the Lord, repeat them to their children, recite them at home in a way he said, do whatever it takes to remember them. Have you ever gone back to a place where you used to live? As you drive around and see the sights, you're reminded of all the things that happened there. Anybody ever done that? Yeah? Um, My husband, when he was a child, lived in Winnipeg. And so as we drive around and see certain streets and schools, he always starts, have I ever told you about the time? And my kids by this point are like, yes, we've heard all about it, Dad. In the Bible, there's different practices that they use to help people remember. One of them was the making of altars. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, and Samuel all built altars and monuments to remember God's faithfulness or a significant interaction with him. Joshua 4 reads this. When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men, one from each tribe. Tell them, take twelve stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. He told them, go into the middle of the Jordan, in front of the ark of the Lord your God. Each of you must pick up one stone and carry it out on your shoulder, twelve stones in all, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the Ark of the Lord's Covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. Even in Habakkuk, um, as the people were being captured and deported by the Babylonians, They also put out physical reminders. The prophet Jeremiah wrote God's instructions, set up markers along the road, put up guideposts so you can find your way home. The NIRV puts the verses we just read in Habakkuk this way. Lord, I know how famous you are. I have great respect for you because of your mighty acts. Do them again for us. In brackets I wrote, repeat, renew, revive. Make them known in our time. 
When you are angry, please have mercy on us. He's saying, God, I remember. I've heard about your miracles. I've heard about your power. I've heard about your glory. I remember them. But God, you're not doing it right now. If I was honest, I could tell you that there are seasons in my past where God's presence seemed more real than others. There were seasons when his power seemed more evident. I'm like, God, I know you can, but you're not. Renew what you used to do in our day. I know you can. God, do it again. That's, that's really what he's saying. In fact, the Hebrew word, oh, I'm using a Hebrew word, that's translated renew is the word haya. Everybody say it, haya. Renew it again, do it again. God, I remember what you used to do. God, do it again, do it again. Now, anger is not an attribute we like to think about for God, but mercy we're all over. And it seems like these two usually show up together. From the sparing of Rahab on the walls of Jericho to the redemption of Isaac on Mount Moriah, God's mercy always shows up with his anger. I think the cross is the best example of God's wrath and mercy intersecting. Next, Habakkuk looks at some very tangible and visible things that will trigger spiritual memories because things can trigger memories. For example, smells can trigger memories. Now, can anybody smell a cinnamon apple smell in here today? A few people. I tried something, guys, and it didn't work really well. <laughs> I admit it. I tried. I failed. There's crock pots here and at the back that have apples and cinnamon. And I was hoping you would smell really apple cinnamony things. So just pretend you can smell it. Okay, go along with me on this. Um, apple pie. You may smell apple pie and you might think, Grandma's house. For me, Grandma's house smelled like Yorkshire pudding and sugar cookies. Or some of you might even say, no, actually, Grandma's house smelled like mothballs. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know why, but there are certain things that trigger memories for us. It could be a song. Jeff and I have a song. Or some of you who are my age, every time you hear an air supply song, you might think of a couple's skate. <laughs> Okay, there's a few of you out there, thank you. <laughs> I don't know what it is. In fact, I was reading some stuff on the internet about how they're using smell to trigger things, how they're using it even in retail. God has wired us in really unique ways and can help us to remember things in different ways. When Habakkuk, uh, where are we here? Sorry. When Habakkuk is going to do in these next few chapters, he's going to take a memory with, about the goodness and the power of God. So starting at verse 3. I see God moving out across the deserts from Edom, the Holy One coming from Mount Paran. His brilliant splendor fills the heavens, and the earth is filled with his praise. His coming is as brilliant as the sunrise. Rays of light flash from his hands, where his awesome power is hidden. Pestilent marches before him. Plague follows close behind. When he stops, the earth shakes. When he looks, the nations tremble. Now, a little time out here. When I think of this, when he looks, the nations tremble, I have to think about a mom. <laughs> I don't know. That mom look as kids, when, when my mom would look at us, she would have that look. And when she looked at us, we trembled. And I don't know, that's just the image that came to mind when I was reading this. When he looks, the nations tremble. He shatters the everlasting mountains 
and levels the eternal hills. He is the eternal one. I see the people of Cushion in in distress and the nation of Midian trembling in terror. Was it in anger, Lord, that you struck the rivers and parted the sea? Were you displeased with them? No, you were sending your chariots of salvation. You brandished your bow and your quiver of arrows. You split open the earth with flowing rivers. The mountains watched and trembled. Onward swept the raging waters. The mighty deep cried out, lifting its hands in submission. The sun and moon stood still in the sky as your brilliant arrows flew and your glittering spear flashed. You marched across the land in anger. You trampled the nations in your fury. You went out to rescue your chosen people, to save your anointed ones. You crushed the heads of the wicked. You stripped their bones from head to toe. With his own weapons, you destroyed the chief of those who rushed out like a whirlwind, thinking Israel would be easy prey. You trampled the sea with your horses, and the mighty waters piled high. I trembled inside when I heard this. My lips quivered with fear. My legs gave way beneath me, and I shook in terror. I will wait quietly for the coming day when disaster will strike the people who invade us. While there's a lot of speculation regarding which specific events he was referring to, we know they all point to times in history when God displayed his goodness and his power. Things like the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, the conquest of Canaan, his victory over the Philistines. There's elements of the Song of Deborah, the Songs of Moses and Miriam, and the wilderness wandering. If we move on to verse 17... Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer able to tread upon the heights. These have become some of my favorite verses in the Bible right now. The previous 16 verses declared the visible proof of God's sovereignty, goodness, and faithfulness. And in his conclusion, he declared his faith, even when there was no visible sign of God's presence. If you look at these verses, they're all about food and the agricultural business of the day. If all those things are gone, it means there's nothing to eat, Nothing to drink, nothing to wear. Even when our livelihood is destroyed, God is strong. Even when all hope is lost, God is salvation. Stripped of everything, the prophet recognized the presence of his creator, redeemer, and sovereign Lord was all that he needed. There's an intimacy reflected in the words as he declared, God is my strength. This conclusion even sounds a lot like Psalms, but the Psalms tend to praise God for his provisions, while Habakkuk praised God in the absence of provision. I want to take a look at another story from the Bible, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm reading from Daniel 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar flew into a rage and ordered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought before him. When they were brought in, Nebuchadnezzar said to him, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you refuse to serve my gods 
or to worship the gold statue I have set up? I will give you one more chance to bow down and worship the statue I have made when you hear the sound of the musical instruments. But if you refuse, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. And then what God will be able to rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. That's crazy faith. That's even if faith. The kind of faith that knows God can, believes he will, but worships even if he doesn't. The kind of faith that recognizes when God is involved, anything is possible. So as we ask, what do we do with this today? I think the first thing for us to do is to remember. Remember what God has done. God, I remember what you're capable of. Renew those deeds in our day. When I am confused and questioning, for me at least, sometimes I just have to sit down and remember. I have to go back to figure out who God is, who I know him to be, what he's done in my life. When I don't see him today, I remember what he's done in the past. Something else you can do with remembering is to read your Bible. Read your Bible in its entirety. We can see who God has been in our past and what he's done You can read books about other Christians and their stories and see what God's done in their lives. But most of all, I want you guys to find a a way to remember what God has done in your life. Some of you maybe journal, and you can look back over your journals and see how God has been with you. Or maybe you need to start journaling. Or if you don't, maybe try marking up your Bible. Whatever works for you to remember. One of the things that I have in my office, I have a file, and I call it my rah-rah file. You're like, what? Cheerleaders, rah-rah? Anyways, that's why it's called a rah-rah file. In my rah-rah file, I put um, cards that I've received from people, little notes, different things that people have given to me along the way. I have a bunch at home as well, but I have it also here for just the different things that have happened at Elam. And when I'm having a really down, discouraging day, I take out my rah-rah file, and I'm reminded of the good things, reminded and, and just to be encouraged again, because sometimes... The negative can really pull you down. And that's what God wants us to do. He wants us to remember. And whatever it takes, maybe you make a file. I don't know what works for you, but maybe find some way to remember what God has been doing and has done in your life. I think second of all, we need to trust God with everything. And that's not easy to do. The even if prayer. What's, what's going on in your life today? Or what are your biggest fears? It might be, even if my spouse said, till death do us part, and didn't live up to the word, I will still rejoice in the Lord my God. Even if I raise my kids to know better, and they're making really scary decisions right now, yet I will trust in the Lord my God. Even if we prayed physically for someone to get better, and they've actually gotten worse, yet I will trust in the Lord my God. Even if finances are tough, And it costs like $400 to fill my gas tank. Yet I will trust in the Lord my God. Even if I don't like it, even if I don't understand it, 
Even if I know he could and he should, but he's not, yet I will trust in the Lord my God. I want to share some of my past experiences with God, the things that I remember, the things in my past where I've seen God at work to remind myself, yes, but also I hope to encourage you, and I'm going to try not to cry. (laughs) I grew up in a Christian community. I had parents who loved the Lord. I remember as a child my parents kneeling down um, beside their bed and praying. I remember going into the room at night and seeing that. I remember having family devotions around the table. I remember going to Sunday school and having Sunday school teachers who loved us. I remember having siblings who I could talk with and share with. I remember as a teenager with youth group leaders and just all the people who really influenced and helped me to understand and to see God. I remember even as a child, and some of you might think this is really dumb, but as a little child, I would move over in my bed so that there was room for Jesus to come sleep beside me. I know it sounds really dumb, but it's what I did. I just, I loved Jesus so much, and I just wanted him to come be with me, and I really recognized what his presence could do in my life. As a teen, my relationship with Jesus grew even more. Um, I think it was grade grade seven. I was um, in the hospital for most of the year with struggles with breathing and allergies and a whole bunch of things. And when you're in the hospital, it can be really, really tough because for the first little while, people will come visit you, but when you're in there that long, even my parents, they had jobs, so I was there alone a lot, and it was really hard. You can watch TV for a while, but even after a while, TV gets really boring. I know it's hard to imagine, but it's true. (laughs) And in those days, there weren't very many channels. But anyways, um, and so when I got really lonely, I turned to God And God was there for me in a way that that blew my mind. And he he was just really there for me. Dating was a crazy time in my life. We aren't going to get into all of that. But God was there through all the breakups. I broke up with my husband before we were married a number of times when we were dating. But God brought us together, and um, he was there through that. Both of my girls' pregnancies were hard pregnancies. They were both preemies. I was hospitalized a lot through them. And again, God was there in the midst when with one of them, they weren't sure if I was going to live, if she was going to live. God was there. And I think back to those moments, and I remember God's presence. I remember it so clearly. Matt, before, just before we went into seminary, just before he was two, he was, he was two in September, and I think... Um, he went in for surgery in August, so just a little bit before. He had a hole in his heart and had heart surgery. And the rest of my family wasn't able to come, and so it was just Jeff and I. And I remember as they took him off, it was so hard. Your little tiny baby going off on a stretcher to go have heart surgery. They're putting him on a bypass machine. They were stopping his heart. It was like, oh, my goodness. But you know what? We sat in that waiting room, and we prayed. And we prayed, and God met us there, and he was there. And God did miraculous things, and now you'd never know. My son never had a problem with his heart. (laughs) I could go on and on, but one last thing I want to share with you. All of you know about my daughter, Victoria, and um, that she was really sick, sick to the point of death. And we raised a bunch of money here to help send her to treatment, And um, we got her to the States, to that treatment center, but she chose not to go, and in fact, left. That was a really, really, really dark time for me. Just like Habakkuk was questioning why, 
I called out to God all the time. Why, God? I, and I truly believed, I truly believed he could, he could perform a miracle. He could do it. I really honestly believed that like, to the depth. And I was praying, you know, God, you can do this. I believe it. And we raised the money. And, oh, look, we've done it, you know. But it was more about me than it was about God. It was about me and my control. I have an issue. <laughs> I'm a control freak. And I like to have things. And I try to put God into a controlled spot, too. And as, as she had gone and I went through that really, really dark time, I went to a Cutlass concert with the kids. Well, I think it was a whole youth retreat, but Cutlass was playing. And they sang this song, Even If the Healing Doesn't Come. And oh my goodness, guys, I started to cry and I started to weep. And I had to come to the place where, God, even if my daughter dies, I'm going to have to praise you. I'm going to have to worship you. <laughs> And that was not an easy place to get to. It was tough stuff. Like, seriously, even if you kill my daughter, I'm going to worship you? What is that? That's crazy talk. What kind of faith is that? it, It was a really, really hard place. But God and I eventually worked it out, and I had to come to that place. That even if she dies, God... I'm going to worship you. Yeah, it may not be easy, and it's not going to be like, yay, I, I'm going to worship you in, in hurt and in pain, but I'm going, to, I'm going to worship you. When, when all of that happened, and, and my daughter Victoria, God did save her in an amazing, unique way, and it is an answer to prayer. But I kind of think in some ways that God, God chose not to save her until I was where I needed to be, which is a scary thing. But it was my stuff to figure out, too. I had to be at the place to let go, to say, you know what, God, even if you do this, I'm okay with it. And God did save her, and she is a miracle, and her life and what he's done in in her is a miracle. And it's one of those big moments that I look back and I remember, God has been with me. The, um, everybody should have gotten a little piece of paper when they came in that has, like, blank song. If you don't, maybe one person can kind of grab some from the... Thanks, Ashley, from the back. And you can just put up your hand and she can bring it to you. Today I'm going to ask you to fill out your song. Just like Habakkuk's story, he starts with some scripture. You've got that there, and I don't bring mine, so that's okay. Um... I'm going to get Tom to put it up on the... Here's Justina's song. And there's the first couple verses from Habakkuk, and then it says, I remember God. I remember God as a child. Oh, I forgot to tell that story. I remember God in seminary, um, and I remember God with healing of Victoria. What am I dealing with today? What is the even if? The even if still is around a lot of that. I don't want to get into all the details, but basically, even if something bad happens to my family, yet... I will praise and rejoice in the Lord. So we're going to watch a, uh, or listen to a video today, and I'm going to invite you to take a few minutes to write your song. What are the things you remember? What are the things that you remember God doing in your life? When has God shown up? It doesn't have to be big things. It can be just remembering his presence, maybe when you asked him into your life. I asked Jesus into my life when I was just a little kid, but I really remember feeling God's presence, wanting God to lay beside me in bed. I knew God was there. Where are the places that you remember God in your life? And then what are the things that are your biggest fears? 
Maybe it's stuff you're actually going through today, or maybe it's stuff that you're like, oh, I couldn't give this to God. Yeah, I can give God this and this and this, but, but not that. So what are your biggest fears? And I invite you to write it down. You're not going to share it with anybody. This is your own thing. This isn't small group stuff. <laughs> it's the even if. So I'm going to take a few minutes. We're going to just listen to the song, and I invite you to just spend some time. If you don't feel like writing, that's okay, but spend some time remembering who God's been in your life and be willing to trust him and give him your even ifs today. Lord God, creator of all things, all-powerful, there are many of us hurting here today. We feel like you have abandoned us, that we're all alone. We know you have the power and ability. Why won't you do something? We come to you today in our need, asking for you to do it again. Revive us. Help us like you did in the Bible. Help, help us like you have in our past. We believe you can, but even if you don't, help us to trust you, to worship, to rejoice in you, and to recognize that you are God. Amen. Amen.